you're encouraged to turn with me in your Bibles or your attention to the screen. We are in Mark this morning. We are in the first chapter. We're going to start at verse 35, and we're going to read a few verses together. So this morning, we are continuing our study of the spiritual disciplines. That's part of our quest to discover what God's will is for our lives here together. Spiritual disciplines, as we have said, are sacred paths for us for deeper intimacy with God and to a deeper understanding of his will. We've talked about the necessity of taking time to be with God and responding to his presence with awe and silence. We've talked about engaging scripture, not to gain more information, but for our transformation. We have talked about allowing the spirit to come in and change our hearts and lives. Last Sunday, we talked about listening for God in prayer. And this morning, we're going to stick with that prayer theme. And we're going to talk this time about something called contemplative prayer. So here are these verses that are tucked in the very first chapter of Mark. And Mark writes for us, beginning at verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Most people including most Christians, would describe prayer as asking God for things, like for protection for our children, like healing for ourselves or perhaps for others, or for an upcoming decision that we need to make to, to go like we would like it to go, or maybe for a certain team to win the Super Bowl or the Big Ten or even the Calvin Hope game. Or maybe we're praying for a new laptop or a bigger screen TV. Not that I know anything about praying for those kind of things. These are facets of prayer that we call intercession. Or if it's for us, like the laptop and the bigger big screen TV might be, then we call it petition. Sadly, Almost all of the prayers that people pray fall into one of those two categories. Robert Mulholland, in his, in his book, Invitation to a Journey, writes this. He says, we tend to think of prayers as something we do in order to produce the results we believe are needed, or rather, to get God to produce the results. Go to any Christian bookstore and note the number of books devoted to the techniques of prayer. We are interested in knowing what works and developing the skills that ensure that our prayers are effective. As a result, our prayers tend to be a shopping list of things to be accomplished and attempt to manipulate the symptoms of our lives without really entering into a deep, vital, transforming relationship with God. So this morning, we're going to take a few minutes and talk about a completely different focus of prayer. One that I think sadly is foreign to most followers of Jesus. 
It's known as contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer is about, as Mulholland says, entering that deep, vital, transforming relationship with God. Down deep. Most believers, I would believe, have a genuine desire to consciously spend some time conversing with God. That, in fact, makes a pretty good definition of what prayer is really all about. But imagine, as we noted last week, communicating with a sovereign God, cultivating an intimate relationship with the one who created us, communing with the one who was willing to die so you and I might live, or cherishing the one that we'll be spending eternity with. I can't imagine it getting much better than that. I mean, after all, isn't that really why people become a Christian? In order to have the opportunity to spend eternity with God? But if that's really true, why is it so difficult for us to focus even a few moments on being with God now? Why does a significant part of us long for intimacy while another part deeply resists it? Why do we say we want to be close to God, but we're really not all that willing to set apart any time for it? Why do we have so many difficulties embracing what we claim is so important to us? Why do we adamantly resist that which we desperately need. Contemplative prayer. And for some it has sort of an ominous ring to it, but it is really simply prayer that focuses on cultivating the relationship that we have with God rather than prayers of intercession or petition or confession or lament or adoration or even thanksgiving or praise. Why? when we have a personal invitation to spend time with the one who literally holds our eternal destiny in his hand, do we spend so little time conversing with him? We've noted it before. The average believer who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ spends less than five minutes a day conversing with him. And most of that conversation is just talking at God and just telling him what we want. What kind of relationship would you have with your spouse? If the totality of your relationship was talk, to talk to your spouse for five minutes a day, tell them everything you want them to do for you, and then simply walk away. Or what would that do for your relationship with your children? Or your BFF? Or anyone for that matter? Well, prayer is typically defined as talking to God. Contemplative prayer would be better defined as being with God. In contemplative prayer, we empty ourselves. We give up our agenda. We focus our attention on God simply to enjoy his company, simply to bask in his love, simply to rest on his lap, simply to allow his words and his presence to soothe our soul. That is, in contemplative prayer, we seek God's face. We seek his presence as opposed to seeking his hand, what he can 
give to us. The Westminster Catechism's first question asks, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of a human being? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We have an idea of what it means to glorify God. But what does it mean to enjoy God? Is it really possible to enjoy God? From the scripture, we note that as God was walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, he enjoyed those times together. God, by his very nature and essence, enjoys and longs to be in companionship with us. And he delights to have us there with him. Emmanuel. We talk about it at Christmas, but it simply means God with us. And the truth is, it's good 365 days of the year. So what will it take for us to realize that God delights in just being with us, in just spending time with us and having us spend time with him? So there is this invitation that God gives to us to contemplative prayer, just to delight and enjoy God together. Marjorie Thompson in Soul Feast tells of a Protestant pastor who had visited a monastery and couldn't understand how in the world these monks could sit for hours and hours in the chapel just looking at the, at the bread and at the chalice, the cup of the Lord's Supper. His son, who had just had his very first child, said, I think, Dad, I might understand. You see, since our daughter arrived, I can just go into her room and stand by her crib and look at her. She doesn't have to do anything. She doesn't even have to be awake. I am so fascinated with her, I don't know where the time goes. So why is this contemplative prayer so important, so imperative? Let me give you three reasons, and there are probably more. But the first is, in our quest to be more and more like Jesus, we need to learn to pray more and more like Jesus. And Jesus spent a considerable amount of his life, of his time here with us on earth, in prayer. His life is marked, if you will, by glorifying his Father and enjoying him. So when Jesus says, when you pray, note he doesn't say if you pray. He says when you pray. He underscores for us that God expects us to pray. And then Paul adds that followers of Jesus should be devoted to prayer. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that we ought to pray without stopping, without ceasing and when Paul is talking about that, he's talking about contemplative prayer, not an endless stream of intercessions and petitions. Second, prayer is primarily about our relationship with the Father, with God. When people love each other, they want to spend time together. When you're apart from your spouse or your children or close friends, you miss them and you long to be together again. When you're away from home, do you expect 
to hear from your spouse while you're gone or your children? Do they expect to hear from you? We don't connect out of a sense of obligation. No, we connect with those we love out of our love for them. We long to stay connected because we love them. We long to stay connected because we enjoy being together. We long to stay connected because we understand we're better when we're together. It's contemplative prayer that focused primarily on that relationship. The world's largest radio receiver is in New Mexico. I have a few pictures. Pilots call it the mushroom patch. Its official name is Very Large Array, VLA for short. And I'm just imagining that somebody spent tens of thousands of dollars just to come up with that catchy title. But it is a series of satellite disks spread over 38 miles of railroad tracks. And astronomers come from all around the world to analyze the optic images of the heavens that are based on the radio waves that come from the VLA. Donald Whitney muses about how it seems people are willing to go to such great expense and trouble to intercept some radio waves that come out of heaven from space. But when God clearly reveals himself in his son Jesus Christ, and continues to speak to us through his Holy Spirit, and then invites us to spend time with him, we ignore him. We're not all that interested. In our text this morning, Jesus does a very remarkable thing. It is foundational to who he is and to his entire mission and to his relationship with his Father. You see, earlier in this chapter, we are told that Jesus has put in an an extremely long and hard day. He's been teaching. He has been preaching. He has been healing. He has been casting out demons. It's been exhausting. But after just a few hours of sleep, Jesus is up well before daybreak. He climbs to the top of Mount Arbel, which is known as Prayer Mountain, in order to spend time with his father to pray. And that if you've had the opportunity to take it, is no easy hike. That's a commitment on Jesus' behalf to time with his father and to their relationship. Simon comes looking for Jesus, the text tells us, and he finds Jesus in Jesus' sacred spot and says, everyone is looking for you. Now that should come as no surprise. I mean, Jesus' healing and his teaching are in high demand. Jesus' response, however, is a surprise. Listen to what he says. Let's go somewhere else. Let's go to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. How does Jesus know it's important on this occasion for him to go somewhere else? (laughs) Because he had been with his father. Because he had listened to his father. Because he knew his father's heart. Our time alone with God keeps the father's mission before us. It keeps us in the father's will. It gives us the strength to remain faithful and to persevere. 
It helps us to keep the main thing, the main thing. And then third, contemplative prayer is the antidote to complacency. You see, Israel had become complacent in their worship of God. They were spending all Sunday at the beach. They were shopping at the mall. They were staying home because the game was on or just sleeping in because the last six days at work had been horrendous. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. That's what's going on now. Israel in the Old Testament and in Jesus' day were not listening to God. They were not being obedient. They were off doing their own thing. God was not on their mind. He was not on their agenda. He was not on their calendar. Increasingly, people are no longer desperate for. They are no longer dependent on. They are no longer fully devoted to God. You can tell. Some people don't think you can, but you can tell. You can tell by the way they worship. You can tell by the way they talk. You can tell by the way they act. And you can especially tell by the way they pray. You see, like the widow in Luke chapter 18, desperate people are not ashamed. They don't give up. They're constant and consistent in their pursuit of God. They persevere. God loves desperate people because desperate people seek God with their whole heart. A few years ago, I was in the desert It's a beautiful day. There was not a cloud in the sky. There was not a breeze in the air. It was 125. We'd been hiking for several hours without anything to eat. We had gone from 700 feet below sea level to 3,500 feet above sea level. The drinking water we carried in my backpack was now over 100 degrees. It had been frozen solid when we left. I was tired, I was hot, I was hungry, I was thirsty. It's only a few years ago, so I was old, and I thought I might die. That desert was the Negev. Same place Israel wandered for 40 years as God tried to teach them how to be desperate for him day in and day out, to trust in him with their whole heart and in him alone for the bread that nourished and for the drink that satisfied. To be dependent on him solely for strength, for shade from the sun, for a fresh breeze. You see, we will never know if Christ is all we need until we experience Christ as all we have. And we learn that in the desert when we're desperate. Desperate people live and pray differently than people who are comfortable. When everything is going well, when the job is going good, we have a good income, we have a problem-free marriage, when the kids are healthy and they're doing well in school, life is good. We're comfortable. But our prayers are less intense, less frequent, less personal, less dependent. And that less impacts our relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we don't seem to need him as much as we sometimes do. And so 
we don't spend as much time with him. And then a crisis comes at home or perhaps at work. A crisis comes in our relationships or perhaps in our spiritual life. Or a tragedy occurs and something unexpected happens. And those always seem to be on the horizon. And suddenly we realize that we don't have a relationship with Jesus when we need it the most. So are your eyes fixed on Jesus? Is there an ounce of desperation in your soul for him? The story is told of a man in southwest Louisiana who wanted to know God. And someone directed him to an elderly woman in northern Louisiana. He, he said, go to her house and she will show you how to find God. This well-to-do gentleman drove his very nice automobile until he ran out of pavement. And then until he ran out of the gravel. And then it was a two-track. And then finally just some grass. He got out and walked to this house by the lake. And there was an elderly woman sitting there on the porch in her rocking chair. And he said to her, I am looking for God and I have been told you can help me. So she beckoned him to come around to the back of the house, down to the lake. And then into the lake. And he said, I don't need to be baptized. I just want to find God. But it didn't matter. Before he knew it, she had shoved his head under the water and held it there. He quickly realized that she was a whole lot stronger than she looked. And he started to fight for his breath until she finally pulled him up. He now gasping for air. And she said to him simply, when you want God as desperately as you want to breathe, you will find him. You see, our time in contemplative prayer, just being with God, is a good barometer to understand the depth of our relationship with him. And it is fundamental to knowing and discerning his will for our life. At the very heart of God is his deep desire to be in that kind of fellowship with us. God just loves to hear from us. God longs to speak with us. He longs to carry on a conversation. He longs to be in fellowship with us. The very heart of a devoted believer is the deep desire to also be in fellowship with God, to experience more of God's presence, to sit at his feet as Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, to simply enjoy his presence and to listen for anything that he might have to say. It's a time to simply tell God what's on your heart. Franco Fenelon says, and I quote, tell God all that is on your heart. As one unloads one's heart, its pleasures and its pains to a dear friend. Tell him your troubles that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys that he may sober them. Tell him your longings that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes that he may help you to conquer them. Talk to him of your temptations that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good, your depraved tastes for evil, your instability. Tell him how self-love makes you unjust to others, how vanity tempts you to be insincere, how pride disguises you to yourself and to others. If you thus pour out all your weaknesses, needs, troubles, there will be no lack of what to say. You will never exhaust the subject. It is continually being renewed. People have no secrets from each other. 
People who have no secrets from each other never want, subject, never want for subjects of conversation. They do not weigh their words. There is nothing to be held back. Neither do they seek for something to say. They talk out of the abundance of their heart. Blessed are those who attain to such a relationship with God. And then, listen to comfort. He longs to share it with you. This kind of listening, you see, takes some time. And truth is, we're busy. We have th important things to do. But unlike us, God is never busy. He is never in a hurry. He always longs to spend time with us. And he always makes himself available. When we listen for God and speak to him, when we spend conscious time in his presence, our relationship grows. We become better disciples we become more and more like Jesus. When asked why he felt it was important for someone to spend so much time with God, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, because I'm a Christian. Amid our technological gluttony, we struggle to just be with God. Janet Reese, in her wonderful little book, Flunking Sainthood, <coughs> writes of her attempt at contemplative prayer, of just trying to be still and quiet in God's presence. And this is what she writes. The first thing I noticed is all the noise around me. It's lunchtime during the first Friday of the month. I've forgotten it's siren day. Wow, was the noise. I wonder what would happen in a real emergency, speculates Monkey Mind. For example, it is often easier to focus on God earlier in the day. What kind of situation would this siren tell us about? Just a tornado or a terrorist attack? What would I do with a terrorist attack? Peace, be still, whispers spiritual mind. Let it go. I picture it as a thought just drifting away on a sailboat, stark against this bright blue sky. I hear a dog bark. A toddler fusses on the sidewalk outside. You know it would be quieter in the room if we replaced these 85-year-old windows with double panes, suggests Monkey Mind. That's a really good idea. I've been meaning to research that possibility. How much would it cost? Would we be able to afford it while paying Christian school tuition? Could we match the old six over one window panes or do they not make that style anymore? Peace, be still, says spiritual mind, a little bit more firmly this time. I sigh and try again to listen to God. Or maybe that was God suggests monkey mind. Maybe God is telling you to replace those windows and do your bit for the environment. Newer windows are so much more energy efficient and God cares about his creation, you know. Peace, be still. Distraction is a fundamental and significant spiritual problem. Perhaps right underneath busyness. And the moment we attempt to be silent before God every thought in our mind has been programmed to just scream for attention so we need 
to discipline ourselves, to reprogram ourselves, if you will, to ignore them, at least for a time. Even in worship, which is meant to draw us into the presence of God, like this morning, finds us so easily distracted. We're distracted by a cough or a technology glitch or a misspelled word on the screen or a fidgety child. Is that really all it takes to distract us from the God of the universe? So what should we do? It is ironic to talk about what we need to do to just be in the presence of God. But here we are. Here's some suggestions. First, don't be too hard on yourself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, the first thing to do is not to get impatient with yourself. Do not cramp yourself in despair at the wondering of your thoughts. Just sit down each day and wait patiently. If your thoughts keep running away, do not attempt to restrict them. It is no bother to let them run to their destination then. However, take up the place or the person to whom they have strayed into your prayers. In this way, you will find yourself back at the text. And the minutes of such digressions will not be wasted and will not trouble you. Second, prepare to spend time with God. For example, try to identify the source of your distractions. For example, it is relatively easy to link the fact that our children are not falling asleep right away when they get to bed to the fact that they are feeding on fistfuls of candy before bedtime. It's often easier to focus on God earlier in the day when you are fresh rather than after a hard day of work and a frustrating drive home and a fight with your spouse or perhaps with one of your children and hours and hours of television watching, perhaps in the morning so we can take the experience with us throughout the day. Or maybe we need to unplug Richard Foster suggests unplugging, that is, turning off all media, the television, the iPad, the iPhone, the computer, for at least an hour a day, for at least a day a week, for at least a week a year. Unplugging before we spend some time with God is also very helpful. Perhaps we should prepare for our time with God by simply slowing down, simply calming our soul, Maybe spending some time in the scripture or with a spiritual reading. Maybe listening to quiet music. Maybe going for a quiet walk. And then third, use the ancient practice of using your imagination. So in your quiet time, picture yourself walking along a beach, sitting by a stream, walking through the woods or sitting in a chair across from Jesus. Practice his presence. And then fifth, just do it. And then do it again and again and again until you can call it a practice. So how does one distinguish God's voice from all the other voices that we hear in our society today? Well, I have five easy steps. Actually, I don't have five easy steps. There is no perfect formula. We need to learn to discern 
the voice of God through experience, through time. Like a sheep learns to recognize the voice of the shepherd, or like a child learns to recognize the voice of their father and their mother. Dallas Willard tells us that certain factors distinguish the voice of God, just as any human voice can be distinguished from one another. Here are the three factors he offers us. First, there is the quality, the quality of God's voice. He says the quality of God's voice is more a matter of weight or impact an impression makes on the circumstances. A certain steady and calm force on which communication from God impacts our soul, our innermost being, incline us toward assent and even toward compliance. So with a sense of divine authority, God's voice is always encouraging and convicting. E. Stanley Jones says, the inner voice of God does not argue or try to manipulate you. It just speaks and it's self-authenticating. You'll know. Second, Dallas Willard says, it is the spirit of God's voice. Not only the quality, but the spirit. And the spirit of God's voice is a spirit of peacefulness, a spirit of confidence, of joy, of sweet reasonableness, and of goodwill. In short, it is the spirit of Jesus. James writes, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality. The Spirit of God's voice is always gracious. It's always merciful. And third, it is the content of God's voice, Dallas Willard says, because the content will always conform to and be consistent with the truths about God's nature and God's kingdom that have been made clear in the Scripture. His words are always unifying. His words are always edifying. And finally, let me offer you a word of invitation and a word of encouragement. First, make some time in your day, in your schedule, for God. Three minutes, five minutes, ten minutes. Sometime. Because your relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit has eternal implications. God desires it. You require it. He is your Father. We are his children. Other things may seem more urgent, but let me tell you, nothing is more important. The process of knowing God is not that difficult. It does, however, require us to slow time and to spend some time with him. And that's a choice. And you get to decide. Second, slow down. Have you ever watched someone approach the wailing wall? They approach slowly. They dwell there for a period of time. And then they back away slowly. God is not in a hurry. Nor should we be. And then third, slip consciously onto God's lap every day. I have eight grandchildren. Mason is 11. Oliver, nine. Judah, seven. Emerson, six. Clara, five. And Lucy is three. They talk all the time. If you listen. This week, Teddy who's just two, said to me for the very first time, Hi, Grandpa. Simon, just one. Best he can do is smile. 
I love them all. Talking, their ability to talk, doesn't increase my love for them, and their silence doesn't diminish it. Just being with them brings me joy. I cherish every moment that they are willing to spend with me, every moment that I get to be with them, every moment we're together. We love to be together with those we love. And God loves that too. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege to call you that and to know that you call us sons and daughters for your children is who we are. And Father, we confess that we don't spend as much time with you as you would like or even as we would like. And so, Father, may your spirit work in us to be able to set a few more minutes aside each day this week just to be with you. That's our prayer. Please answer it in Jesus' name. Amen.